0: guardian angels and patron saints, pray pray for us. us. Our readings are very rich today. We hear of these martyrs who place their trust in the resurrection of the dead in the first reading, the book of Maccabees. And in this gospel reading, we hear this conversation between Jesus and people who deny, who hold, hold a denial of the possibility of being raised from the dead, something that was very much a part of first-century Jewish belief. This conversation is a very instructive one. It's deceivingly simple. The way Jesus answers the scenario that's put to him by the Sadducees teaches us a great deal if we pay very close attention to what is said. Of course, what the Sadducees do is try to present a scenario that's, that leads to something absurd in order to discredit the belief in a resurrection, the hope of rising from the dead. And so this scenario of a sev- seven brothers who marry a woman and die, die childless is meant to be an argument against belief in the resurrection because, well, that's absurd. That would mean she'd be married to all seven in the afterlife. And that's not possible, is it? Jesus' response, we learn, silences his opponents. You can imagine this would be the sort of argument that would take place on a street corner. A preacher calling out and throwing out arguments for others to take up as a way of making his point. An elaborate scenario meant to basically be unanswerable. Jesus slices through their reasoning and silences them with this answer. There is no marriage in heaven. (laughs) That should give us pause when we think about that. Why does Jesus say that? What is the reason that he gives for why marriage does not exist in the life to come? He says they can no longer die. They are like angels. They can no longer die. They are like angels. What does like angels mean? It doesn't mean disembodied. doesn't mean ghostly, pure spirit. It means not dying. No longer subject to death. No longer mortal, but immortal. The implication then is that marriage is bound up with the beginning of new human life. In this world, where we are subject to death, it is for the continuation of the human race, in other words. Were there no marriage, were there no reproduction, the human race would have ended with Adam and Eve. But the race Continues. Human beings reproduce, and they do so through this means that God has given us. The gift of marriage. The sacrament of matrimony. So, there's a few important things that we should pay attention to, and I, and I understand that perhaps some of us will think to ourselves, I've always thought of marriage in heaven. What would heaven be if I didn't have my spouse? Of course, What Jesus is denying is that not that love does not exist in heaven, of course not. Heaven is love, God is love, and the love that we share in this life is absolutely present in the life to come. In fact, it's raised to a new and transcendent supernatural pitch. Of course love exists in heaven, but the quality of marriage, the union of persons for the procreation and education of children is no longer necessary in heaven. Jesus isn't saying you won't recognize your spouse in heaven, it will be as if you were never never married. Of course not. What he is saying is that every one of us has a soulmate and that soulmate is God. Our soulmates were given to us at the moment of our baptism And God calls certain people to a common life of matrimony, first, to continue the human race, and second, to help them live out their calling as God's spouse. The primary end of marriage, the goal, is the continuation of the human race. It's not the goal. It's not the the thing that we live for. You and I don't live in order to propagate. We live in order to love. So marriage is the path to love. And in the afterlife, when we will be submerged in the beauty and the perfection of God's love, living forever, marriage ceases. Marriage points to that time. It It does not... It does not capture that time. This doesn't mean that marriage doesn't have other goals as well. Of course it does. The primary goal of marriage is the begetting and the education and the spiritual formation of children. This is a very straightforward and realistic view of marriage that Jesus teaches us. But so too, it has the goal, the union of spouses, the creation of Uh, a cradle of life and love that sanctifies and elevates us. It doesn't mean either that only people who can have children should get married. It does mean that only people who potentially have the kind of relationship to have children can get married, namely a man and a woman, exclusively for life. So, this teaching actually holds out something very important first about the resurrection that we are given our bodies back as the brother the Maccabean brothers testify, these members, my hands, my tongue, my body, this was given to me by God and I hold them in disdain for the sake of his laws, hoping to receive them back from him in the resurrection. But secondly, it teaches us what is the essence of marriage. What is is the the basis and and the the goal of matrimony, this, this great gift that we live out. And one of our most important roles in living this out is initiating our children into an understanding of this way of life. What marriage is, what our bodies are for, how we use them in accord with God's will. We do so in the earliest stages of life by preserving their innocence, protecting them from being exposed to a false understanding or a destruction of that innocence prematurely. In this case, we have to be very vigilant in order to accomplish this important work this important responsibility over those who have been entrusted to us. We preserve the innocence of our children and grandchildren, protecting them from an understanding of what it means to be a man or a woman, from being changed or altered prematurely, that outside the context of marriage, the acts proper to marriage become distorted and perverted, and don't lead to joy and happiness, but to misery and wretchedness. What we believe is that the union of marriage is a union not just of bodies, but of persons. The union of marriage is not just a union of bodies, but of persons encompassing Their whole self, their past, their future, their hopes and desires, their wills, their willingness to sacrifice and place one another's good before their own. But we live in a culture that denies this. That considers that version of happiness as an act of hatred. We live in a culture that claims human love is nothing more than a biological or psychological urge, an itch that needs to be scratched. And who would object to someone scratching an itch in the way that is satisfying to them? No matter the mental gymnastics that have to be performed in order to deny the plain and indisputable common sense truth that men and women are different, that they complement one another, and that this is bound up with their physical bodies. But these plain common sense truths are being denied. The mental gymnastics, the circus is going on around us. These truths are concealed behind a mountain of media that have been unleashed to divert us and distract us from awareness of this plain truth and communicating it in a compelling way to our children and grandchildren. Things that were considered absurd 10 or 20 years ago are are simply accepted. And how has that come about? Does it not surprise us? How quickly, in the course of a single generation, opinions about the most fundamental, plain, common sense things are being revised to their contraries? The reason these things are happening so quickly is because our children are being formed in an awareness of these things from the youngest years of their lives. I am personally becoming convinced that giving children access, even carefully monitored access to the internet, social media, television, film, popular music is bordering on child abuse. And that sounds very extreme, and I say it that way to try to capture your attention because I feel like sometimes the guidance that I and others, leadership in our school and in our churches, are giving parents is falling on deaf ears. What's the big deal? It's a game. It's a song. It's just a TV show. The number of times I met with that response in articulating these concerns, if I had a dollar for every time, we'd have the new pews that we're we're needing. The things that are constantly being broadcast and transmitted into our homes and into the minds and imaginations of our children are full of ideas and images that anticipate their natural development that speed up their exposure to things beyond their capacity to deal with and give them ideas and images and experiences far earlier than when they are ready for a healthy conversation with the people that are closest to them and responsible for forming them. The natural curiosity of children about grown-up things, well, that natural curiosity is met through the screens that we provide them. With an avalanche of distortions, perversions, graphic and sordid revisions of the great gift of the marital union and what it means to be a man or a woman. These media leave children with the impression that adulthood is primarily concerned about genital urges. That's what it means to be a grown-up to be preoccupied with these things. That adulthood isn't really about the serious business of taking their place within the world, of taking responsibility for others, and the joy and the freedom that loving commitment brings to a human life. And in the meanwhile, it robs them of their childhood. It transforms it from a time of wonder and play and song and curiosity To this mindless spectacle, tapping a screen like a gambling addict at a slot machine, sapping them of their attention and their wonder, and instead letting it run idle into an ocean of mindless play. Long before then, we can form them adequately through the normal, and natural ways of conversation and good example, they have internalized untold gigabytes of a worldview that's not only untrue, but it's savage and it's dangerous, and it wants your children. And it's done using devices and networks and media that we ha- ourselves have placed in their hands. This is astounding. We are accomplices in the corruption of the innocence of our own children and grandchildren. But Father, you might be saying, I watch and monitor carefully everything that my child sees on those devices. Nothing passes by without me knowing. Let me present you with a scenario. This is actually a true scenario. My dad taught me how to drive on gravel roads when we'd go hunting I'd beg him, beg him, dad, let me drive. I was maybe 12, 13, 14 years old, too young. (laughs) And he'd let me sit in the driver's seat where I could move the seat far enough, had to barely reach the pedals. And he would sit in the passenger seat and he would guide the steering wheel and he'd tell me when to brake and accelerate. on gravel roads in the middle of Western Kansas, like what's the big deal, right? If we run off the road, whatever, we're we're in a wheat pasture. But imagine if my dad had said, you're gonna drive all the way home that way and you're gonna get on the interstate and you're gonna learn. You're gonna learn how to drive a car. It's time. And as we speed along the interstate with my dad, guiding the wheel, we're pulled over by a policeman. Imagine that scenario. What would the policeman say in that case when he saw a 12-year-old boy at the wheel? What would he say when his father pleaded, look, I'm right here. I'm watching, I'm paying attention, I've got more or less control of the vehicle. Nothing's nothing's gonna happen. We see these kinds of things happening all the time. The policeman would probably say something like, well, what's the payoff? What's the benefit of exposing your son to being able to drive a car At age 12 when the possibility for disaster is so great all it takes is you looking away for just a moment when a split-second decision has to be made you sneeze you doze off what what about those scenarios is the payoff of learning to drive at age 12 worth the risk of a significant disaster. That man would almost certainly be let off in handcuffs in the back of the patrol car for reckless endangerment of a child. We would rightly demand that situation immediately stop and we would call it child abuse. But similar disasters perhaps even more serious ones, await a child when we put devices in their hands, even when we sit there and persuade ourselves that nothing passes before their eyes that we're not aware of, that can lead to their loss of innocence forever. What's the payoff? What's the benefit? I realize I'm becoming a little more strident about this. But I want to convey the gravity that I see because it's real, it's happening. It's happening to your children and grandchildren. My kids would never do that. My grandkids would never be a part of that. I'm here to tell you they would and they are. And when I see a child who's experienced these things and has become a participant in these things, I am so sad. I want to apologize to them. I'm sorry that we didn't protect you from this. It was our responsibility to do so. I see them totally incapable of making the right kinds of decisions that need to be made, that you and I can make about these things with great virtue and self-restraint. It's difficult for everyone. But imagine being 10 and trying to make those decisions. St. Paul's words to the Thessalonians today in the second reading caused me some sadness as well. He said, we are confident of you in the Lord that what we instruct you, you are doing and will continue to do. I'm sorry to say that I can't say that about the people that I serve in my parish and in my school. I am not confident that parents are hearing this message of concern about the risks that even the most innocent of online games or platforms present to their children. I constantly see small children being babysat with a phone or a tablet. Our kids run circles around us with these things. And in the case of our school, serious transgressions that can deeply wound a young mind and a heart are breaking down individuals and our community and they're becoming common and they're taking place all under the watchful eyes of their parents. So I'm asking us to hear this call to preserve the innocence of our precious sons and daughters, our children and grandchildren, and concern ourselves with preserving that innocence, most importantly, especially in their youngest years. But we also have to preserve our innocence. The word Innocence comes from the Latin root, to do no harm. An innocent person is one who does no harm. And when I see the very devices that we ourselves provide our children harming them, perhaps we need to be more attentive to our own innocence in preserving others from harm. Not allowing them into situations where the the possibility for risk and hurt is so great So I want us to take note of the words of the mother of the sons in this first reading today, in the book of Maccabees. If you haven't read that story, it's quite stirring. Seven sons are led before the king for refusing to break God's law by eating an unclean animal. And they're threatened with martyrdom and really torture in the most gruesome ways, as we heard and read. And one by one, their lives are taken in front of their mother, And as the fourth son comes forward to receive his punishment, we hear his words in the first reading today. What we we didn't get were the words of exhortation that his mother gave to each of them before they came before the tribunal. She said, filled with a noble spirit that stirred her womanly reason with manly emotion, she exhorted each of them in the language of their ancestors, in a language that that the king and his Henchman did not understand. I do not know how you came to be in my womb, she said. It was not I who gave you breath and life, nor was it I who arranged the elements that you were made of. Therefore, since it is the creator of the universe who shaped the beginning of humankind and brought about the origin of everything, he and his mercy will give you back both breath and life because you now disregard yourselves... (laughs) for the sake of his law. Again, the king doesn't understand what she's saying to her sons, and he continues to press her. Yes, tell them. Tell them to give in. Tell them to save their lives. You don't want to see them die before you. She leans over to her son, close to him, and in derision of the cruel tyrant, say the scriptures, she says again in their native language, My son, have pity on me, who carried you in my womb for nine months, nursed you for three years, brought you up, educated, and supported you to your present age. And here we expect her, don't die today. Live. I can't bear to live without you. No, she says, I beg you, look at the heavens and the earth and see everything that is in them, and you will know that God did did not make them out of existing things. Do not be afraid of this executioner, but be worthy of your brothers and accept death so that in the time of mercy I may receive you again with them. This is what a family can be. This is the kind of resistance stronger than even the threat of torture and death that a family bound together around God can present to the injustice and cruelty of those around us and even those who rule over us. And so, may the word of the Lord speed forward and be glorified, as St. Paul says. And may we be delivered from perverse and wicked people, for the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and guard you from the evil one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.